Have you ever been involved with a committee at church or at work and been given the task to design a mission statement? I've talked with people in many different places who've, who've said that it's quite a frustrating project. Um, when I was in the Middle East, they determined that when a group of people came together and tried to design a horse, basically designing a, something by committee, they came up with the camel, the invention of the camel, something that wasn't exactly all that pretty, nor that fast, even though it was functional. Putting together a mission statement can be tough because we all have different opinions about what to do and how to do it, etc. And I was taught that a mission statement, though, however, is important because it, answer, it answers the question, why? Why do we exist? Kind of what is the purpose of our organization? A vision statement answers the question, how? How are we going to accomplish the mission? In other words, the vision statement is the process that enables us to accomplish the purpose. Now, another thing that people oftentimes do in organizations is develop value statements. Value statements tell us what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in order to accomplish the mission. It gives us some guidelines and rules and regulations as to how we can do the mission. Uh, because oftentimes we have to have uh, have to realize that the end does not always justify the means. So we need what we might say are parameters in order to carry out the process, to carry out the purpose. And the final thing we need in an organization is a budget. It deals with the bottom line. What resources do we need to carry out the mission? How do we get those resources and allocate them? In other words, we have to look at the question of provision. Because we need provision in order to help us carry out the process that will enable us to accomplish the purpose within the proper parameters. A lot of P words, but the good news for us as disciples of Jesus Christ that He has already given us a mission or a purpose. He's given us a vision or a process for accomplishing what He wants us to do. He's also given us the parameters, and He's also the great provider who gives us all that we need to do what we need to do. And so the mission of the church isn't really a committee coming together that's going to end up designing a camel. But what God has given us is some clear guidelines for what He wants us to do. So I'd like to look at that today. In case you aren't aware of it, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have been given a purpose or a mission. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and listen to this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage is known as the Great Commission. It's our mission or purpose statement given to us disciples by Jesus. It's quite a bold statement when you consider the motley crew of 12 disciples that Jesus originally gathered. And I suppose if you look at the church today uh, and look at the people in the church today, you might say that Jesus might have been a little over-optimistic to think that we could reach the whole world with a message. Let me read a memo from Greg Ogden's book, Transforming Discipleship, that describes Jesus' disciples. It's a memo to Jesus, son of Joseph, woodcrafter, carpenter shop, Nazareth, from Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We've not only run the results through a computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologists 
and vocational aptitude consultants. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We'd recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter, for example, is emotionally unstable and given to fits of rage. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it's our real duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the Manic Depressive Scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. Jesus evidently didn't take this memo to heart because he did go ahead and train these 12. And 11 of the 12 actually went out and after Jesus' ascension, they turned the world upside down by taking the purpose that they had been given, this great commission, and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we look at church history, we see that the gospel message has gone out. People have taken this great commission seriously. But however, there have been other times in church history and that hasn't been the case. And there have been kind of dry spells when the church failed to understand its true purpose and meaning. If we look in the church today, unfortunately, uh, some people have decided that this great commission really should be called the great omission. Because many people who call Jesus their Lord have not attempted in any way to fulfill this mission that they've been given by Christ. In the American church, statistics show that uh, perhaps only 10 to 20 percent of people actually share their faith with their neighbor. As well, it's very clear that as we look at the lifestyles of Christians, that oftentimes they don't really look that different from their non-Christians. So the Great Commission part that says we're supposed to teach everything that Jesus commanded us to do isn't necessarily occurring and happening. Robertson McQuilkin in his book, The Great Omission, tells a story uh, that raises this issue on a global level. He was speaking to a group of college students, and I'd just like to, to read what happened there. How come, the voice rang out from the very back of the auditorium, I just described the world evangelism situation for a group of Urbana students. I relayed the fact that more than half the world's population not only have never heard the good news of life in Christ, they cannot hear because there's no witnessing church among them. At the same time, I briefly outlined the data on the pitifully few who even attempted to reach those unreached. How come? How come what, I said. The voice from the back of the auditorium rang out again. With so many unreached people, how come so few are going? That's a very good question, I said. In fact, I know someone who asks that question every day. Who's that? The student in the back of the room queried. And the writer goes on to say that as he gestured heavenward, and pointed his eyes upward, everyone knew the Lord asked that question every day. It's an important question. How come? How come more people haven't taken 
the Great Commission seriously and gone out into all the world to share the good news of Christ. The writer here actually goes on to say that this question has haunted me ever since. I invite you to consider this question. Why is it that so many people who call themselves Christians are not intentionally, purposely, or at least trying to fulfill the Great Commission that they've been given by Jesus Christ? McQuilkin mentions a few possible reasons, including we don't care that much, uh, we don't see very well, perhaps we think there must be some other way, our prayer is peripheral, perhaps, not important, or someone isn't listening. But I, what I'd like to do today is look at some other reasons that might give us an indicator of why some disciples of Jesus Christ aren't accomplishing their mission. First of all, they're not working within the parameters. I think one of the reasons that Christians don't always fulfill our calling is because we're not working within the values or parameters that Jesus has given us. A summary of those parameters comes from the Great Commandment in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, where Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I once saw a bumper sticker that said this. It said, one, love your God. Two, love your neighbor. How many other commandments do you need? These are really the parameters that God has given us to carry out the Great Commission. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, he addresses this, this issue. He says, oh, I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. In other words, I can be doing things right. I can be giving everything I have away and doing good things, but I'm not doing it out of love. Then I'm really not doing Christ's work. I'm not doing it within the parameters that God has given us to carry out His purposes. Recall a business slogan that said, it's not doing the thing right that it's, that's important. What is important is doing the right thing. The right thing in building the kingdom of Jesus is to serve people out of agape, authentic love. That's what Jesus wants us to do. David Egner tells a story about a, a third grade science teacher who once asked her students to describe salt. And one of the students uh, replied, um, well, um, hmm, salt, you know, it's, it's like, um, salt's what makes French fries taste bad when it's not added to it. Well, you think about it, many foods are like that. If pizza didn't have the cheese added on top, it wouldn't be very savory. If a banana split didn't have bananas, it wouldn't really be a banana split, would it? Actually, it was in Israel one time at a, an ice cream parlor and ordered a banana boat. Um, out came a beautiful banana-shaped bowl with three scoops of ice cream, hot fudge, whipped cream, cherry on top, but no bananas. So I went back up to the man and said, there's no bananas in the banana boat. And he goes, that's right, no bananas in banana boat. So the essential ingredient was missing. And really, it's that way in the Christian life. Love is the essential ingredient in the Christian life. And if we're not loving people, we're not going to be able to accomplish the purpose that God's given us. Orthodoxy or doctrinal purity is important. Orthopraxy, doing things right, is also important. But orthopathy, having a passionate love for God and neighbor, is essential. Because without love, we're not working within the parameters that God has given us to carry out His purposes. 
Second reason people don't, care, don't fulfill their calling and uh, fulfill the Great Commission is that we're not aware of the process. Um, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus lays out for us a process for training disciples. It gives us a model for how to do the Great Commission. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but I'd like to point out a few things in this passage. <clears throat> it's, a very, it's a pivotal passage because what we see is in chapters 5 through 9 of Matthew, we're reading about Jesus Christ and how He's so powerful. And we see the examples of His ministry. He had authority over sin, over Satan, over disease, and eventually over death, as we see uh, later on. But He has this miraculous power. And what we see in chapter 9 and 10, He begins to transfer His power and authority to His disciples to go and carry out His mission and purposes. And um, we read in this passage, um, in Matthew 9, 36 and 37, that there's a problem. And the first problem is this, that there are crowds of people out there who are harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd, is how Jesus describes them. And what's interesting is that Jesus sees these people and He has compassion on them. He is suffering with them. Basically what He's doing is He's working within the parameters of the kingdom. And He begins to show love to these hurting people and sees the need they have for Christ, for Himself, the Savior. Now the second part of the problem that He mentions in this passage is the fact that while there are all these needy people out here, these great needs, there aren't any laborers or workers to go out and since take care of these people. There are no laborers for the harvest. They're people who are looking for a Savior and have no one to point them in the right direction. But Jesus offers a solution uh, to the problem. First of all, what Jesus does is He calls His disciples to pray. Pray that the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest field, He says. And prayer is the first component of the answer for us in figuring out the process for carrying out the great purpose that Christ has given us. When... Um, when we begin to pray, we begin to get an, an understanding of what God really has in mind for us because we put ourselves in a position to hear His voice. And as we pray for laborers to go out into the harvest field, God answers that prayer. Now, one of the ways He answers that prayer is the way it worked in the disciples' lives. Assuming that they obeyed Him and began to pray that God would raise up people to go out into the harvest field, um, it's interesting to note that the disciples became the answer to their own prayers. God called them then to go out into the harvest field and carry out His purposes. So when we hear the Great Commission, the first thing we need to do is to pray. It's a big part of that process. Pray for people to go out and share the good news of Christ, but also be willing and be ready to be the answer to our own prayers and take part in that process. John Maxwell uh, writes uh, uh, about this passage, and in this passage here in Matthew, he sees several steps uh, to the process of fulfilling God's purposes. I'd like to look at these steps quickly here. First of all, if we're going to be part, uh, understand God's process for carrying out the Great Commission, we first need to take initiative and obey. We need to get active in service. There's the Nike commercial, just do it. Um, what we read in this passage, in looking at Jesus' example, we see in Matthew 9, verse 35, that Jesus went about all the cities and villages. In other words, He got out there with the people and began doing the work. You see, disciple-making isn't a spectator sport. It's never, we're not supposed to be sitting on the couch or in the stands or in the pews cheering on the clergy and cheering on the missionaries and cheering on the professional Christian people to do the work of Christ. 
Rather, we're supposed to be getting off the bench and getting out there on the playing field and carrying out our part in the Great Commission. See, as Christians, we're not fatalists. We don't believe that, you know, whatever happens is going to happen no matter what. I can't change that. Instead, we know that God gives us free will and choices. So we're called to actively step out in faith and carry out the purposes that he's called us to do. Second part of the process, communicate the truth you have already. In other words, share what you already know. It can actually change people's lives. We read in verse 35 of chapter 9 of Matthew that Jesus was teaching and preaching in the synagogues about the kingdom of God. Remember one of my favorite professors in seminary, J. Christie Wilson had been a missionary for years in Afghanistan. He used to always share the idea that um, we're all just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And he also stated that it's never wrong for, to be in a situation in which we don't know the answer, the first time that is. Someone may ask you a question, and all you need to say is, you know, I don't know that answer, but I'm going to look it up before we get back to you. But we, if we share what we do know, we'll find that we have a lot to offer, that God will use what we do know to bring people closer to Him. So don't be afraid of sharing the truth that God has already given you. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have the power of Him working there with you and behind you. Third part of the process, we need to observe and understand the reality of the human condition. We need to stop and look around at the needs around us. We read in verse 36 of chapter 9 that Jesus saw the multitudes. He was looking for the needs around him. And that's part of our process in carrying out the Great Commission. We just need to see what the needs are around us and ask God to show us those needs. Ask God to give us his eyes to see the world as he sees the world. Fourth part of the process, we need to allow God to burden you with a specific need. In verse 36 of chapter 9, it says, Jesus was moved with compassion for these people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was burdened with a specific need, and God will burden you with needs. One of my favorite quotes comes from Frederick Buechner, uh, a writer and theologian who wrote, Your mission in life is where the world's need and your passions meet. Your mission in life is where the world's need and your passions meet. One of the ways in which we know that God is speaking to us is oftentimes when we feel something in the depth of our being, the depth of our hearts. C.S. Lewis Institute's about heart and mind, and God speaks to our mind and to our hearts. And if you ever are in a situation and you feel deeply about a need around you, or you see someone suffering and feel a need to do something about it, that's probably a good sign that God is calling you to take action and to fulfill His great commission in that person's life or in that particular situation. Most of the great ministries of our day and, and, and from, uh, for centuries have been times when people have been burdened by a need and then stepped out in faith. Chuck Colson, perhaps, for example, modern-day um, um, ministry started prison fellowship. He was a prisoner, part of the Watergate scandal, saw the needs in prison. God burdened him uh, when he saw the needs of prisoners and started a ministry that's, that had, has had a far-reaching effect. Some of your churches may have a car ministry. You have mechanics in your church who have the gift of uh, fixing cars, and they see uh, uh, single moms without work who can't fix their cars, and they go and minister by fixing that car. It's seeing a need, taking your gifting and passion, and then meeting that need as God has called you. And oftentimes we might experience a particular difficulty, an illness or trial in our life. And what's interesting is that God will take that experience and then enable you to meet the needs of people with similar experiences further down the road. 
The fifth aspect of the process is we need to look for a divine diagnosis. We need to figure out what is the issue to be resolved. We need to get to the heart of the problem. And in verse 37 of Matthew 9, we see that Jesus diagnosed the problem was that the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He figured out the real heart of the problem. In other words, we don't want to just treat symptoms. We want to treat the real problem and diagnose it properly. And as we pray and listen to the Holy Spirit, He can guide you to see what the problems and needs are around you so you can best take care of that problem. One of the most important uh, steps in, in doing a research paper and scientific inquiry is to write a problem statement. And that's oftentimes the most difficult thing to do. What is the real problem here that we're trying to address? It's interesting, I went to Yorktown, Virginia, uh, and saw the uh, Revolutionary War a battlefield, and they had a, uh, uh, one of those uh, reenactment sites set up, and they were looking at medicine in the Revolutionary War. What was interesting is the doctors at that time actually uh, didn't really understand the real problems of disease. And so as a result, uh, they were doing things like bleeding people. And it turned out that once you were sick and went to the infirmary, your chances of, of coming out there alive decreased by, by going to the doctor. The reason was they end up bleeding you, taking out the vital uh, elements of your body away from you, and took the very thing that you needed to live. And so many people lost blood, became anemic, and died. They didn't understand the real problem. So that's why we need to understand and ask God to help us find out what are the real problems around us so we can diagnose it and then ask Him for the wisdom to how to, to take action. Which brings us to the sixth aspect of the process. Once we know the problem, and then we need to take action and meet that need. Um, in verse 38 uh, in Matthew 9, it says, Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers, into the, send laborers out. And so once we know the problem, we actually take action, pray about it, and move in action. Let God help you take that step. Now, how do we uh, actually take action? The seventh part of the process is, is to partner with other people. Uh, God hasn't made us Lone Ranger Christians. And so what we see is the Great Commission isn't something that's meant to be done by one person. He calls all of us together to accomplish His tasks and purposes. Uh, in chapter 10 of verse 1 of Matthew, says, He called the twelve disciples to Him and gave them power. So the power wasn't to one disciple, but to all the disciples. So as we gather the team of disciples around us to serve the needs in our society and world, we're given extra strength. And the eighth part of the process is then take immediate action uh, when, you, when, you, when you can. In uh, chapter 10, verses 5 and 7, it says, The twelve were sent out by Jesus. And Jesus told them, As you go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. In other words, start moving, start doing things, get things done, and take action as God empowers you. One of the reasons I think that, you know, unfortunately, many disciples of Jesus today aren't that effective is they don't understand this process. They're not actively involved in, in these steps in seeking God's power and help to meet the needs of society around them. It may be that they're just not aware of the needs because they're not looking, they're ambivalent, they don't care, or they're just not thinking about it. They're intentionally, purposely trying to carry out the command. And yet Jesus has given us a nice model here for the process that can help us in carrying out the Great Commission. There's a final part to this Great Commission, and that is provision. Uh, we're given the great promise in Matthew chapter 10 that there, the, and verses following of how Jesus will provide us with all that we need to carry out the Great Commission. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand all the resources that, that God has given us to do this. Uh, no shrewd businessman would 
go into a business venture without having the capital behind him to, to, to accomplish the task. So we, in the same way, need to understand what resources we can garner together to fulfill the Great Commission. First of all is prayer support. It's so important to gather people to pray together for whatever task we feel God is calling us to do. And uh, we see this happening in Scripture time and time again. As disciples met together and prayed, things began to happen. Second resource God gives us is authority. Jesus has given us authority over demons, for one. We are in a spiritual warfare. Jesus made it very clear that, that uh, the devil and his demons are alive and at work in our society, but greater is he who is in us than he, than he that is in the world. God has given us the power and authority over spiritual forces of darkness. He's also given us healing power. We're called to, to heal, pray for healing, and bring healing to people's lives. We're also to preach and teach the message with power. We've been given the gospel message, the truth of Christ, to share with others. A third uh, resource uh, in the big picture of things is material provision. The Lord promises that He will provide all that we need to carry out His purposes. And we look in Scripture time and time again, uh, the disciples were provided with what they needed, whether it was food or lodging uh, and, and other resources. Paul's kind of an interesting character in that uh, we see in Paul's uh, that sometimes he worked as a tent maker and earned his own money and then preached at night. Other times people gave money to him so he could travel and preach the gospel. So there are many different ways in which God provides for us and to carry out the Great Commission. But he will provide what we need. Fourth thing it says God will give us is he will tell us what to say. We read in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 10 of Matthew, But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At the time you'll be given what to say. See, when we, we don't have to be afraid about sharing our faith and carrying out the Great Commission and worrying about what to say, because if we pray and ask the Lord, He'll help us. He'll give us the wisdom to know what to say in those situations. He'll also give us courage to face persecution. See, in the book of Daniel, for example, in, in chapter 3, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they uh, were thrown into the fiery furnace, or just about to be thrown in the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar, they said this. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and He will deliver us from Your Majesty's hand. But even if He doesn't, we want You to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve Your gods or worship the image of gold You have set up. God gives you courage to carry out the Great Commission if we just take hold of it. And we are in a spiritual war. We're in a battle. And what's interesting, actually, in this the story of, of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that uh, once they declared this, the king turned up the heat seven times, it says. So as we get involved in the Great Commission and carrying out and doing God's work, we can expect the enemy to turn up the heat. That's part of being in a spiritual war or battle. But again, God is greater and He will give you the victory. Another thing that He gives us um, is He gives us other disciples around us to encourage us. You're going to find in your life as you begin to carry out the Great Commission that He's going to put people in place to encourage you. Um, to share a quick story, I went to Budapest, Hungary in 1991 to teach English uh, in a uh, Hungarian high school and in a college there. The, the wall had just come down and the doors had just opened up for Westerners to come in. I went in with a team of about 40 to 50 uh, other American Canadian teachers. Uh, when, when I first entered this school, it was kind of the elite prep school in, in Budapest, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I did the right thing as far as the process. I began to pray hard and fast. I got people around me who, to pray. Um, and then I said, Lord, can you show me if there are any other Christians in this school? 
and I had about seven classes, about 20 kids in each class, high school kids. And this had been a communist school. My boss was a, a devout Leninist still, um, but they allowed us to come in and teach. Um, when I, what I do say, God, show me if there are any Christians here. And I remember looking in the classes out at my students. And every class, there would be like two to three kids. Literally, there was like a glow about them, like almost a halo look. And their eyes were filled with light. And I just said to myself, are those the Christians? Well, a week or two later, some of those very students came up to me in the hall and said, uh, Mr. Woodruff, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I am. And they said, well, we are too. We just came to Christ. We're young believers um, would you teach us? Would you meet with us every morning before school? And would you pray with us to reach the rest of the school for Christ? See, what God did in an amazing thing is He surrounded me, encouraged me tremendously, because suddenly I had other fellow believers in the school that I could work with. I, wasn't no longer, I was no longer isolated. And the great thing about it is we met every morning for the rest of that year. Those kids then went out and, re and reached their uh, friends for Christ. And there's a renewal in that school. Uh, in a former communist atheistic school, there's suddenly Christians blossoming because people were praying and the disciples working together. <clears throat> what do you think hinders you from receiving Christ's provision to accomplish His mission? Is it a lack of prayer? A lack of expectation that God is going to provide? A lack of trust? Or maybe a failure even to see the provision and resources that He's already given you? The good news for all of us is, is that the Lord has given us everything we need to fulfill the Great Commission. He's given us, first of all, the purpose, the statement itself, to go into all the world and to make disciples of all people. Secondly, He's given us the parameters in the great commandment to love God and neighbors ourself. Thirdly, He's given us this great action plan in, in Matthew 9 and 10, which gives us the means for implementing the commission. And finally, He's given us the great promise, we could say in Matthew 10, where He promises to provide everything we need to fulfill His purposes for us. The New Testament reveals that as mistake and sin-ridden as the early Christians were, uh, that they were still able to accomplish His purposes because they began to learn to depend upon the power of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to pray and ask the Lord in the days to come how you might take on this great commission that Jesus has given you, this assignment that's been given to you personally and to all other Christians and believers, and truly live out the Great Commission. If you do, I believe that you will find fulfillment that you've never known before, because in doing so, you're taking part in the greatest movement on the face of the earth. Growing up, one of my passions was sports. I loved uh, playing baseball and basketball and football. I loved being on the teams. I loved the camaraderie and the competition. You know, I think part of it was just the thrill of being out there on the field. And as I look back upon it, really, whether we won or lost, the great part about it was being active and being part of the competition. On the other hand, as a kid, some of the worst and most miserable days of my life were those days when I had to sit on the bench watching other people out on the field playing while I picked splinters. Do you want to be part of the great adventure of life? the Great Commission, then I challenge you to get off the bench and get out there on the playing field. Begin to share your faith with your neighbors, with those abroad, with anyone you run into, and begin to fulfill the Great Commission to which God has called you. C.S. Lewis writes, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, 
even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. You can be part of the greatest adventure on the planet, the expansion of the kingdom of God by the power of Jesus Christ.